0: Hi, I'm JR. And I'm Simon. And for that reason, we might actually get this over and done with in 60 minutes for a change. <laughs> There's only two of us. Lee yes. Lee's in that box. But this <laughs> week, he's got he's got Mark in the box with him.
1: Yes, they're, in, they're both in the box of shame together.
0: Yes, and this was so last minute, we didn't get a chance to really get anybody else in to come and talk with us. So, tonight, Simon, you and I are going to talk together, just the two of us. Ooh. Mmm, this will be exciting, won't it? (laughs) Well, it's even more exciting. It'll be different. (laughs) It's not the first time, though, is it? We
1: did another one called Chat, didn't we?
0: Yeah, we did one just the two of us ages ago. Uh, Now, Simon, you know what the subject for tonight's episode is.
1: Yes, it's Series 2.
0: But you don't know what the result of the vote was. So we'll be doing the first five stories in the vote. In other words, the five stories that nobody liked. Mm. And you don't know which ones they're going to be.
1: It'll be interesting because the only choices I've seen are the three other members of the Boo Box podcast. Mm. Um, So it'll just be interesting to see whether we we kind of line up with the public at large. Mm,
0: A little bit. Okay. The thing about this series is I think the top three stories and the bottom three stories pretty much write themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's the four in the middle that are kind of... When I was doing the votes, because you, like, take each vote and then, you know, tot up the scores as each vote comes in, the ones at the top and the ones at the bottom pretty much didn't move and the four in the middle were shuffling around every single time.
1: It was a bit like that when I was picking the stories if I'm honest you're absolutely right I filled in the top space and the bottom space and it was all the ones in the middle that were Yeah yeah in flux
0: Yeah I think this is the one series where I don't think I even had to think about the order I just I literally put the stories in in seconds I think Yeah yeah and I'm looking at the voting now yeah. Oh, well, we'll talk about the voting in a minute.
1: You know, sometimes you you just have to go with a hunch. Sometimes, don't you? It's, it's, yeah. Sometimes it it doesn't do to overthink things because you can. Well, as we know, we've we've based a whole podcast on <laughs> overanalyzing these stories. But you I can look at you can look at a story in a multitude of ways and come with a diff- come up with a different opinion on them, can't you?
0: I think in the end, I think it's got to boil down to which one do you enjoy watching the most and which one do you enjoy watching the least? Yeah. Because a lot of people judge it on all sorts of other different factors. And, you know, while those other factors might be perfectly valid, you know, in the end it comes down to did you enjoy it more or did you enjoy it less? Mm. Anyway, before we start on that, we've got, oh, uh, we think we've got about three or four emails. And also, we've got the latest edition of Knoxbox.
1: Hey. Oh no, we've got to do a duet on that.
0: Yeah, I'm afraid we have. Can't <laughs> let him down. Are you ready?
1: Yeah, if I can remember the melody.
0: <laughs> okay, three... Does it go up first? It goes up. It goes up. Three, two, one. Knox box. Okay, I don't think that was quite as effective as it has been in the past, but never mind. No. This week, Grant Knock, this is week five of Knox Box... Grant Nock, in his rewatch of the entire Stephen Moffat era to find out whether it was better or worse than he remembered, gets to the start of series six. Now series six is the one that seems to cause the most fuss with uh, you know the fans, the one that they seem to appreciate the least, so it'd be interesting to see his thoughts on series six as they come up. But first of all, he watched A Christmas Carol, and he says it does exactly what it says on the tin and is wonderful for it. My favorite Christmas episode. Mm. On The Impossible Astronaut and Day of the Moon, he says, I remember it being good, but it's just blown my socks off. Massively entertaining, cast are brilliant, in particular Matt Smith. Doctor Who has never looked so good. Stunning. Mm. Mm. So there you go. Very positive vibes on uh, the first story in Series 6. Yeah. Uh, I have a feeling the wheels will come off next week when it gets to the pirate one. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, yeah. It's so funny, isn't it? It's Series 6 was a journey, and, and it'll be interesting to hear people's reactions once they're out the other side of it. You know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, we've got an email from Doc Whom who, I don't know if you remember from the last email we had, who's Hmm. no longer with us. Eh? Yeah, so he's had to send this email via a Ouija board. Oh, okay. So he says, or, you know, he sort of messaged me through the ether and I typed out, Gentlemen, I'm sure that your podcast on foreign filming was done with good intentions, but it has ruined my memories of Doctor Who. (laughs) First example is City of Death, you said. What? cried I. What about the first Doctor's second story? Are you saying that it wasn't actually filmed on Scaro? What's the point of looking forward to the rediscovery of the Marco Polo episodes now that you've revealed that they weren't actually filmed on location in China? The only advantage to this new world you've introduced me to is that it finally resolves so many plot holes which had previously mystified me. In Fort of Doomsday, of course the Doctor could survive floating in space without a spacesuit. He was actually in a TV studio. In The Seeds of Doom, of course the Doctor could survive walking around Antarctica in his normal clothes. He was actually in a TV studio. In The Brain of Morbius, of course the rocks of Khan sound hollow when walked across. They're actually wooden sets. In The Mask of Mandragora, of course it wasn't very sunny. They were filming in Wales, not in Italy. And finally, London Underground Limited finally gets closure. It's all so obvious now. Keep up the good work. Doc Hume, speaking via his spirit guide, the late William Hartnell, a.k.a. Castellan Spandex, speaking via his spirit guide, the late Patrick Troughton, Chancellor Flavorsome. Speaking via John Pertwee, coordinator Engelbert, speaking via Spirit Guide Peter Cushing, and Cardinal Bruhaha, speaking via his spirit guide, the late but level headed J. R. Southall. <laughs> you know those diddly dumb boys get worse, don't they?
1: Hey, how do you say your surname? I will say Southall.
0: It is no, it's not Southall, it's Southall. Southall. Yes. With a South th, forward. not a the. You just said subtle. Uh, that's a joke. Oh, okay. I'll tell you why, because somebody mentioned me on a podcast the other day and they said my name wrong. Um. I can't remember what it was. Who's He podcast, maybe? And they called me mm-hmm. uh-huh.
2: yeah,
0: Well, Actually, I went and listened to it and they started saying it right and then corrected themselves and said it wrong.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh. <laughs> 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 well, what can you say about that?
1: Southall. 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 There is actually an H in there. Southall.
0: Yes, it's Southall. Yeah. All right. I can't okay. believe we're Southall. devoted two minutes to how you pronounce my surname.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's, yeah. It's um, never even really occurred to me what, what your real names are, J-R. <laughs> I'm a bit more concerned with how I pronounce the surname. Anyway, let's move on.
0: Ben from Indiana says, hello, blue boxers. I just listened to your podcast on foreign filming. I have to say my very favorite foreign location that Doctor Who filmed in has got to be the English countryside. Gosh, I'd love to afford a plane ticket there someday. Love, Ben in Indiana, United States, North America, (laughs) 38.3019 degrees north, 85.8214 degrees west. I think he's just given his location away. I thought I was going
1: to say, I'll look him up on Google Maps now. I'll be able to see the top of his head.
0: (laughs) Yeah, maybe. (laughs) All right, shall we talk some series two? Go on, then. Go on, then. Okay, right. The story that came in last. All right,
1: let's place your bets. (laughs) Let me think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the story that came in... Two words. Go on. Yeah. The story that came... Oh, the next one up after that is two words as well. Oh, oh, no, no, no. Three words, and then two Richard Hogarth describes the story that came in last as, Out of the entire history of the show, I hate about four stories. The Censorites, Warriors of the Deep, Nightmare in Silver, and Fear Her. I keep hoping I will like this story, but I never do. Shameful acting, shoddy script, Hugh of BBC News, just no... This is Doctor Who at its worst, and him running with the torch comes off as pretentious rather than heartwarming. <laughs> Meanwhile, Sean M. Vale says it started off okay, if a little too similar to the idiot's lantern, and then the Olympics happened. Sigh. Mm-hmm. Fear her. What are your thoughts on Fear Her, Simon?
1: Um, I... Oh dear. I, I'm, I kind of feel like the heart of it is a really nice idea. Um and a serious idea as well, something that could have been dealt with far better, but it kind of comes across as a re- uh, like a weak Sarah Jane episode.
0: Yeah, I um, know what you mean. Mm. You're right about the idea as well. I'll come to that. I'll come back to that in a minute, remind mm. me. Okay. But yeah.
1: But there's so much in there not to like and it's uncomfortable viewing. Um Do almost you think like the so, wheels. Of <laughs>
0: Did in you... as much as a lot of people had a problem with uh, the girl who plays Zoe Webber. Chloe Webber, Zoe Webber. Yeah. But I didn't really have a problem with her at all.
1: No, I didn't. And this is what I say
0: at the heart of it, is that the elements are there, but... Um, and Nina uh, Sasanya's in it. Yeah. Anything She makes anything worth watching. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, as I say, all the elements are there, but some, it's the realisation... Um, you know, in, in particular, you know, the scribble and things like that. That
0: oh, I liked that. I do you? Yeah, I thought that was great. I, I thought know, it was really it nicely that, done.
1: I just wonder if it's one of those things that looks better on paper than it it was in in real life. I don't know. um tish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's like well. I'm right in thinking that up to about three-quarters of the way through the episode, people are literally dying, uh, dying, disappearing, aren't they? You don't yeah, see anything yeah. happen to them. They disappear, and then they appear as drawings. Mm. Um, and then all of a sudden, you actually see something actually manifest
0: itself. The scribble, um, you mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I'd, it comes across as a bit silly.
0: You know, it perhaps the episode perhaps doesn't feel like Doctor Who, because it... F- it kinda, it's more of an investigation. The doctor doesn't normally turn up and investigate. He normally mm. turns up and finds stuff out, right? Mm, but mm. in this one, he's kind of almost actively investigating, like some kind of cosmic policeman. Mm. You know, it, then it feels that that feels slightly off to me. Mm. And of course, you've got the relationship between the tenth Doctor and Rose, which is probably at its apotheosis at this point Mm. it's one of the ones directed by eros lynn Mm. and russell t davis obviously had a plan for this series it was all about hubris right which is the doctor and rose thinking that they are too good to ever be in serious trouble thinking Mm. they're on top of everything. Whatever problems the universe throws their way, all they've got to do is click their fingers and they'll sort it out. Mm. And that starts in Tooth and Claw, really. Uh, Mm. There's a little bit of it maybe at the start of New Earth, but really, it really kicks in in Tooth and Claw. And Tooth and Claw is one of the Eros Lin-directed ones. Mm. And that, and the Idiot's Lantern, and this. He also did Girl in the Fireplace, but that is like most Stephen Moffat stories during Russell T. Davis era, that's completely, you know, to the side. That's completely yeah. different. But those three <laughs> yeah. but those other three stories, Tooth and Claw, The Idiot's Lantern, Fear Her, kinda of form a sort of trilogy. In Tooth and Claw you kinda of see the start of the Tenth Doctor and Rose getting too big for their boots. In the Idiot's Lantern, it's almost almost The way they're running around and flashing grins and hopping on the moped and stuff, it's (laughs) almost like when, you know, the scene where Rose loses her face, it's almost like the universe saying to them, you just just watch yourselves. Yeah. And then fear her is like the last hurrah of them being too big for their boots before, in the very next story afterwards, it all falls apart. So I think it's (laughs) deliberate. It, i think it's deliberate in all three of those stories yeah but i think because you didn't know what was coming you may have guessed that something was coming or you may not but even if you guessed that something was coming you still couldn't really see it at that point mm. so i think and i'm not saying this is the whole of fearher's problems but i'm saying this is the atmosphere in which the rest of the problems um you know had cause to thrive but the atmosphere of it Just feels ridiculously smug. Yes, yes, absolutely. And Um, so when you throw the rest of the problems in, and the big problem is the Olympic thing, you know, it's like it already feels too smug. And now you've got the doctor (laughs) running around with the Olympic torch, lighting the flame, ridiculous. Yeah, and
1: at the same time, not actually learning anything from their experience. No,
0: because they, they should have learned in the idiot's lantern you can be as smug as you like, but it doesn't mean the universe isn't going to get you if you're not careful. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And of course, you know, and this is sort of like the flip side of that, because in The Idiot's Landon it's Rose who has the face taken away, it's Rose who's the one the Doctor has to rescue, and in Fear Her, of course, it happens to the Doctor. He's Mm. the one who gets subsumed into the drawing, and Rose is the one who has to rescue him. So... But... I will say, at the heart of Fear Her... uh, Okay, I need to preface this, really. If Series 1 was Russell T. Davis being kind of cagey with bringing back Doctor Who and writing or writing with other people, 10 stories that kind of formed a single theme, because Mm. Series 1 does feel very consistent, and that's because it's almost one story across the entire mm. series. Yeah. Well, by Series 3, and particularly in Series 4, they're almost coasting a bit. Mm. They By Series 3, they know what they're doing, they're comfortable with what they're doing, they're very good at what they're doing, mm. and there's a lot of episodes in Series 3 that feel like they're coasting. And truth be told, the stories in Series 4... Even more so, and it's only the fact that it's Donna that lifts that series, but the stories themselves yeah, the stories themselves in series four, a lot of them aren't especially great. No, yeah. yeah. So so in series one, Ross T. Davis is being very cagey about how to go about making Doctor Who, being very careful. Series three, confident and you know, doing it. Mm, But mm. series two is the point at which they work out what they can do. Mm. So while series one might be ten stories, that all feel of a piece. And while series three might feel like ten stories that are sort of coasting on the highway, as it were, they're doing well and they know they're doing well. And occasionally in series three, they will try new things like in Human Nature, where you've got the Doctor being human for two episodes. Mm. But a lot of Series 3 just feels like they know what they're doing, and they're doing it. Mm. But in Series 2, you've got quite a number of stories in Series 2, where you've almost got a feeling of, can we do this? Rise of the Cybermen's a great example. Stories out on a parallel Earth? Mm. I mean, they don't come back and do any other stories that are quite as, uh, with quite such a conceit as that again.
1: You know, A Parallel
0: Earth is quite a big conceit and they do have this once in this series and fear, and of course Love and Monsters, you don't get another Doctor Light story Mm -hmm. (laughs) remotely like that. Uh, The return of Sarah Jane in School Reunion, obviously that was another little risk that they took while they found out what they were doing. But fear her is the biggest one. Mm, mm. Fear Her is the story wherein not only do you have a baddie, for want of a better expression who's actually a goodie Mm. and so the whole plot is there's no villain in it, no villain of any kind and the villainous activity in fact they even you know that scene with their wardrobe at the end, where Mm. they think the father's coming out, that's Mm. almost shoehorned in, in order Mm. for there to be a villain, inverted commas, in the story. But the rest of it is all sort of predicated on a, basically a misunderstanding. It's like Mm. a little baby who doesn't know what they're doing, who's trying to get all these friends to come along and play in their playpen. Mm. It's kind of a really weird idea for a story. But also a really good idea for a story. Yeah but, yeah. but it would have worked better in a different... I think what really doesn't work about it is that it's a really interesting and fresh idea for a story. But like you say, they do it in a sort of CBBC fashion. Mm, mm. Whereas if they'd have done it really spooky, like a Sapphire and Steel story, Yeah. that could have been really effective. Oh, absolutely. Instead, mm-hmm. you've got the Doctor and the Olympic Flame.
1: I mean, at the heart of it, there's quite an interesting psychology with a child. I mean, they could have. Mm. It it could have been all about the the child's state of mind, and we could have learned more about how, you know, their relationship with missing parents and things like that. And, you know, Russell T. Davis would be really good at that, surely.
0: Well, of course, it's written by Matthew Graham. And I think Matthew Graham's probably one of the. Because we all know now, thanks to the books, that. Russell T. Davis rewrote a lot of people, yeah. and there were certain people he didn't rewrite. And I think Matthew Graham, being a name, mm. perhaps didn't get rewritten or not as much. So, no, no. I mean, this uh, is the
1: Matthew Graham. I'm I'm right in saying one of the two halves of Life on Mars, yes.
0: Mm. Mm. Yes, but have you seen the rest of his CV? No. Oh, what bone shakers and things like that and going back to before doctor who things like the last train oh I'm not seen that all right well it's a great idea really badly done yeah okay <laughs> and it's oh my god if, it, if anybody's not seen the lost train and will at some point in the future i won't spoil what it is but it has the most ridiculously flawed twist at the end that I've ever seen in anything (laughs) Yeah. I'll I'll whisper it they're looking for somebody and when they find the somebody they don't realise that it's the somebody they're looking for even though the somebody isn't exactly the place that they were looking for them and they end up (laughs) at war because they think it's someone else oh seriously Yeah, it's just uh, the most ridiculous lapse in logic I've ever seen on television (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so when I saw that Matthew Graham mm. was writing for Doctor Who yeah. didn't instill me with a great deal of confidence to start oh, with really? to See,
1: I, only, I only had Life on Mars to go by and I was a huge fan so I, obviously when I saw that he was writing I thought mm. oh my god this is brilliant
0: but you know I and, thought um, Life on Mars was only carried by the acting do you think? yeah I did. I did. the last episode was okay mm. and the first episode was okay but I hmm. think a lot of what happened in between, There were good. I'm not saying there weren't good episodes, hmm. but I really think the idea was carried by the actors rather than the writers on a lot of that. Although Chris Chibnall wrote two episodes and they were both very good, you know, which was why when he came to write for Doctor Who and everyone said Oh, Chris Chibnall," I'm thinking, No, he wrote two of the best episodes of Life on Mars.
1: Yeah, it didn't even occur. That hasn't even occurred to me. I didn't know that. How rubbish is that?
0: Oh well, so there, there you, you go. go. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, well, yeah, do your
0: homework before you start slanging people off. And also, fear her, back to the subject of fear her, there's some really mm. nice touches in that story. You know, when you, when you come to re-watch things that you know really well, you're not mm. watching for the plot anymore. You're watching... You're not watching for the plot anymore and you're not really watching for the characters anymore either because you know what the the characters are going to go through and you know how they're going to go through it. What you're really watching is for the nice touches, those little bits of storytelling, either Mm. through the script or the acting or maybe even the direction, but those little bits of storytelling that even though you know they're coming and even though you've seen them a million times, they still give you a little tingle of... A little tingle of anticipation and a little tingle of realisation. You know, the bit of the start where the TARDIS lands sideways and he has to rematerialise it the right way round. That's a lovely touch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it took, you know, something like 44 years to get to that point where somebody actually thought to put that in as a story. (laughs) And then there's some small touches as well. Some of the by-play, the interplay between... um, Rosen the Doctor. And I think the scribble monster goes down as one of these lovely touches as well. I think the bit where the Doctor's got the scribble monster and he's investigating it in the TARDIS with the sonic screwdriver, I think that's a lovely mm. scene. And there's some really nice <laughs> acting in it too. Mm. I mean, it's not mm. a very particularly special scene, but I just, you know, it's when I, when I do watch that story, I look forward to that bit.
1: Is it just before we move on, because we spent mm well we spent 20 minutes on this haven't we but I suppose it's being right. being the the subject of hatred that the episode is yeah, yeah. We, we should concentrate on it but um, interesting parallel with Night Terriers where you get this child interesting I, I'm, parallel I'm
0: or too... an absolute remake
1: yeah I suppose it is a remake I'm being kind um, Night Terriers obviously more successful but I, I would love to see an episode where they have a child as the focus of a story where I feel some kind of I don't know what the word is. Fatherly, you know, yeah. Well, yeah. Being a parent, if you, if there is a child involved in the story, then obviously I'm going to be sensitive to those things. But I wasn't touched by either of them, and I'd, I'd like to see one where you do Feel you do feel like the child mm. is. I think they are something.
0: the two weakest stories in their respective series mm. by a long way, really.
1: Isn't but, funny.
0: Mm, it's weird and you know just to go off at that tangent for a moment it's weird how you know night terrors is so close to fear her it was almost like it's almost like fear her and you know i have to say on the voting here fear her has got only a third of the number of the votes of the next story up let alone the one at the top mm. the one at the top has got seven times as many votes as fear her has Mm, mm. So you know, but it's weird how they they. It almost felt like they looked at it and thought that story is so reviled. What we need to do is redo it in the right way, and still mm, failed. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Did anyone vote
1: for her fairly high
0: in their votes? Uh, not that I recall. I don't have the votes in front of me. Mm, uh, there mm. were the rest of every other one of the nine stories either came somewhere near the very top or somewhere near the very bottom of somebody's, you know, list of the ten stories. Mm. But I think Fear Her was the only one that was consistently in the bottom half.
1: So it's, it's definitely not a Marmite episode then?
0: No. In fact, oh, out of 21 people who voted, it got 27 points, which means it only got six points more than if everybody had voted it bottom.
1: Ooh, it's interesting. So somebody thought one of the episode, other episodes
0: was worse. Oh, yeah. I think mm. there were... I think there were maybe three or four different stories that ended up at the bottom.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, well.
0: Including the next story we're going to talk about.
1: right. Okay. Which oh, we'll no God.
0: doubt devote considerably less time to, and that's <laughs> New Earth. Oh, really? Yeah. Shall we um, yeah. just get a couple of comments on that before we get into it? Um, yeah, go on. Because we've got these two emails with the rundown of the stories. Richard Hogarth says, a romp that, fell more, <laughs> that felt more like a wet stomp. Too much comedy, and when the drama came in, it wasn't, uh, it didn't have enough impact. A great shame. Mm. And Sean Vale says, uh, it was just okay. Nice to see the bitchy trampoline back.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: But new Earth mm. uh, there's a really interesting story behind this but but before we get into the story behind it, I mean mm. what's important is what ended up on screen, and what did mm. you think of that then? I thought
1: that it was a performance piece it was about getting David Tennant and rose uh you know uh, Tenth Doctor and Rose taking over it was a performance piece it was a chance for them to it, it, felt their... like the, yeah, yeah. it felt like yeah, it felt that the story was second to the. To the characters in some yeah. respects. It was just a chance to get the characters to do a certain thing.
0: And There's even a chance, and yeah, just go to on. go with that theme, even that scene at the end where they go back and they see the younger um Cassandra. Yes. It, it ties in with that as well, actually, doesn't it? It
1: does, it does. It's um it's almost like he thought, right, what do I want to happen to this, and then put kind of a fairly weak storyline behind it, um, which could have been stronger if it was given more emphasis. Um, it was kind of, you know, the ending was very uh, empty child, at the end everyone lives type thing. Um, it was enjoyable at the time. Uh, they, somebody used the word romp, and I think they are absolutely right, in as much as it was lots of nice little sequences that didn't really... Thread together properly. See so how like the 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 lift sequence is fantastic, and giving David Tennant the chance to to show off and do his acting as a woman and that mm. sort of thing. So yeah, there's an awful lot of comedy, as I said. Um, but was, as a whole, I don't know. I don't know.
0: Because the, 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 T. Davis is quite fond of giving you something of a Deus Ex Machina at the end of his story sometimes. Yeah, including most obviously in most of his series finales but new earth and tooth and claw were right next to each other and they both had endings that were signposted right from the start and that were very logical mm. that was a nice touch to be able to work out what the ending might be and then you know spend the rest of the episode seeing if you were going to be right mm. and it's lovely the way he introduces the elements it, the scene at the start where they go in the lift and they have the um, the, the shower and that, the decontamination, mm. very funny. And you don't realize he's actually setting up the end of the plot when you see mm. that because the comedy is a distraction. But the big problem, well, there's two big problems with New Earth. And um, in spite of the two big problems, I do think it's a massively enjoyable watch. Mm. But, but, the two big problems, the first problem is the script. This is Mm. David Tennant's first episode as the Doctor, essentially, because Christmas Invasion, he spends two-thirds of it in bed and then just has one big scene for 20 minutes at the end, basically. Or maybe Mm. maybe two scenes if you want to describe it as that, but it just feels like one scene for 20 minutes, really. Mm. And Mm. so... What's really important is the Doctor's... Any new Doctor's second story is more important than their first because the second story is wherein you consolidate who they are. Mm. So, Mm. for example, with Tom Baker, you've got Ark in Space. And Ark in Space is really where Tom Baker sets down the template for the fourth Doctor. And Sylvester McCoy in Paradise Towers. You look at Time and the Rani, he's all over the place, he doesn't know what he's doing. You look at Paradise Towers and all of a sudden you can see all the roots of what Sylvester McCoy's Seventh Doctor is going to be in that story. But Mm. they're not in Time and the Rani. And this is how you do it. Your second story is where the Doctor says who he is. The first story is the story where he, you know, the first story is the story wherein he comes out of himself, and the second story is the Consolidation. And that mm. and yet Russell T. Davis chooses to make David Tennant's second story a story where for half the episode he's inhabited by Cassandra as in and he's doing Zoe Wanamaker impersonations. Yes. Yeah. Well I mean what? That's ridiculous. It yeah, should have yeah. been it should have been halfway through the series this episode. Yeah, absolutely. It would have been a great fun sixth episode, do you know, or an eighth episode, yeah, or yeah. something. Mm. But as a first episode, it's just all over the place.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and the um, tr- it's just a, a second-rate zombie story, really, isn't it? In some mm. respects.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. A second-rate zombie episode meets a second-rate possession comedy possession episode. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Almost it's like just, it.
1: It feels, it feels like a big audition for David Tennant,
0: basically. Yeah, it's it, like you said before. It's for the actors and nothing else, and hmm. the story really suffers because of that. Yeah. But the other problem with it is, uh, from a production point of view, like I said earlier, this was a series of experimentation, basically. Hmm. And in the first series, because they were producing the episodes in sort of discrete blocks and generally they'd give each of the directors two stories to do as a block. Oftentimes this would be two single episodes and sometimes Mm. it would be a single episode story and a two episode story and then occasionally a director would get lucky and just either have a single episode by itself or a two part story by itself. But this was the one and only time they tried something different and they made such a pig's ear of it that they uh, ditched that idea and never went back and did it that way again they'd done a single episode and a two part story together as one block in series one so Mm. to start off series two they thought well we can do three episodes as a single block let's do that again except Mm. it was three single episode stories including the Christmas special so The Christmas Invasion, New Earth and School Reunion are all done by a single director as a single production block and if you ask me it shows in all three of those stories. Uh, mm. uh James Hawes I think who directed those three and James Hawes had done The Empty Child. You know?
1: Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: And if you look at James Hawes' CV he's directed mm. some pretty Pretty decent television. He's a very capable director. Not just capable, but, you know, uh, inspired uh, sometimes. Uh, Empty child, case in point. And you look at these three stories and they're all badly directed. I mean, you know, School Reunion. People love that story, but they Mm. love it. They love it for the fact that it's the story wherein Sarah Jane came back, and it has a nice script by Toby Whithouse, and the actors, because they're capable and because they know what they're doing, they're given it. Mm. But, you also look at School Reunion, and you look at the kids in School Reunion. You know, if you're going to have kids in a story, you have to take the time and use them well, and some of the performances from the kids in that episode are dreadful. And it's not the kids' fault. No, no. It's the fact that the director is having to hurry them through to get the material in the can.
1: Isn't it ironic that a series which is supposed to have such an emphasis on children, you know, going back to Fear Her and going back to Night Terrors and also Nightmare in Silver, when when there are children involved in the story, they always seem to be flawed stories.
0: No, no. Always. No, it's not Go true. Come on, tell me one that isn't. Well, no, Empty uh, Child. is All oh, right, Empty Child's yeah. exception to the rule. Any more? Oh, silence in the Library.
1: Okay. Oh, we got All the Moffat ones.
0: Yeah, all the Moffat. Moffat's very often got children in his stories, and a lot of the Matt Smith stories have got children in, and a lot of them are very good. No, you're kind of right. I know what you're saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you look at the classic series, children's series, but... Uh, it was made before CBBC existed, mm. right? So, back then, a children's story would either very ostensibly be something that involved children, like the railway children, or mm. you, you know, in our in our playground, the box of delights, right? So, yeah. a children's story back then would either would either very ostensibly have children in it. Or it would just be a story that's suitable for children to watch. Mm. And Doctor Who kind of fell into that category. Mm. You know, uh, I, I suppose something like Lord of the Rings. Yeah. You yeah. know, uh, it's probably not a brilliant example. Or Star Wars. Mm. They're sort of stories involving grown-ups, but that are great for kids, right? And yeah, look what happened
1: when they introduced a child. Mm. <laughs> and then, And
0: then, yeah. Because you're sort of getting into the modern era now and, you know, I said because it was before CBBC. Yeah, but yeah. I'm using that as a kind of a um, kind of a shortcut to saying what I really mean. But in mm. the modern age now, there's kind of become a feeling that if it's for children, there has to be children there. And when Russell T. Davis brought Doctor Who back, he was a bit afraid of that at first. Mm. He was a bit afraid that if you put it on at seven o'clock on a Saturday night and it's filled with child actors, you're going to be seen as... Just for the children, so he was afraid to put too many children in it because he wanted to make Mm. sure he got the adult audience as well, and he didn't want those to run scared of it. No, so, so the empty child, yes, has a child in it, but for 99% of that story, the child's behind a gas mask. So, (laughs) yeah, so you come forwards, and Fear Her really is the first time you do have children in Doctor Who, yeah, but then you look beyond that. Matt Smith, he has little Amelia in his very first episode, mm. and he made such a connection with Amelia, and Stephen Moffat obviously likes having children in his stories anyway. You only have to look at Silence in the Library, right? He o- yeah. He obviously sees, and some people would describe this as the CBBC influence, but I think that's just a shorthand. He obviously sees that you can have children in Doctor Who, and you can get children to relate to the programme in that way. The girl in the fireplace starts with a little girl in bed, afraid of the monsters under the bed.
1: Well, maybe the difference is, and it rings in my ears, I can't remember who it was. It was one of the people who were really great at making children's series, and they always made the point that you don't go into it with the idea that you're making a series for children. You treat them with the same respect. You don't treat them like they're any, any less intelligent than adults. Oh, no, absolutely not. And possibly that is where Stephen Moffat gets it right. He doesn't attack it in the same way. If you look at an adult series, say, like, Waking the Dead or something like that, whenever there's a child involved, they they treat the child like it's a real person. Well, yeah. And
0: and, kind of what you're saying is, if you yeah. make a programme about doctors you're going to have a certain number of people in the cast who are doctors... and you write at that level, right? Yes. And Stephen Moffat's sort of motif seems to be... if you write a series for children... you'll have a certain number of people in the cast who are children... and you write at that level. But he's doing that in the same way as you would do with doctors... or teachers or whatever that you've chosen as your... he's not writing it for kids, he's writing it for children... In his mind, children being a sort of a job, sort of rather than do you know what I'm saying, rather than something yeah. somebody that's juvenile. It's almost like it's almost like it's just another section of society. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and it really works because you look at yes. Stephen Moffat's stories, and do you know who was it who said this about the classic series that it was. Um, I think it might have been Tom Baker or somebody like that said it had to be intelligent enough for the children and dumb enough for the adults. <laughs> and yeah. you look at and you look at Stephen Moffat's stories they're the perfect embodiment of that. Mm. Because he tells these sort of really complicated stories that are actually not really that complicated and are right. actually fairly easy to follow as long as you don't get over obsessed with the minutiae. But they all make a perfect sense when you get to the end of the story. And kids kind of love that because kids Mm. look at the colors and the images and the characters. And as long as they can see that, you know, person A is the bad guy and person X is the good guy and person X wins at the end, they don't care how it happens. But then when you get to the end of it and they see it happening, the kids will go, oh, yeah. Whereas the adults Mm. will go, well, that doesn't make any sense.
1: No, no, I'd love to know if we've got any listeners who've got children and they watch it with their children, I'm sure Lee will say, whether there's ever been an instance of the child turning around to the adult to explain what's going on. I'm sure maybe. that must happen. That must happen.
0: I know a lot of people who watch it with their kids and the kids absolutely adore the sort of Matt Smith stories. They think Matt Smith brilliant. And, yeah, you know, yeah. why wouldn't you? you? Everybody's seen the first five minutes of the 11th hour. Why wouldn't a kid find Matt Smith brilliant? Yeah, oh, it's just great. Anyway, oh, I guess him. that's anyway. Yeah, it's the wrong episode. I guess that's New Earth. Yeah, we kind of went off a way a tangent there. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, to let you know what's coming up next, I will mm. read out what Richard Hogarth had to say about it. Oh, this is going to make it pretty obvious. Always love a Mark Gater story, and here, while I have to agree. Besides the Doctor and Rose, the other characters are stereotypes. But seeing that era and the statement on TV really makes this story a must-see. Sean M. Vale, meanwhile, said some nice creepy bits. Rose, without a mouth for a while, was a nice break. (laughs) And so the story that came third bottom is, of course, The Idiot's Lantern. Yes. Yes. And, you know, we've already mentioned that. Yeah. Again, it's a case of nice ideas let down by not great realisation, really, isn't it? It is, absolutely, yeah.
1: It's some really, I mean, potentially really creepy. Creepier than the Autons, the um, the people with no faces. I mean, mm. real stuff and nightmares. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you've got someone of the calibre of Maureen Littman in there as well,
0: who actually plays it well, really. Um, I think the big problem with Maureen Lipman in that story is that they recorded all their stuff entirely separately from everybody else. Yes. And I think when you're doing acting of that kind, you really need to be acting to somebody. Yeah. Or else it feels disconnected. Yeah. And it all the Maureen Lipman stuff all felt disconnected to me.
1: And you know the irony is that if it had been filmed in the style of say, you know, uh, if anyone's watched any of the latest series um, of Inside Number Nine filmed in much the same way, treated as uh, a piece of adult uh, fantasy, being just a little bit quirky, a little bit odd, it would have been different, wouldn't it? But um, instead you've kind of got the Technicolor RTD stuff going on. Um, so, and, and as they say, kind of
0: real stereotype characters.
1: And The uh, whole
0: story about the boy and his dad felt really yeah. kind of... You know, when you have only got 45 minutes to tell a story you have to kind of make your decisions and you know I've said this many times I think Stephen Moffat has got really good at telling a little story and spreading out across 45 minutes Mm. so that you can so that all the colour that you bring to it is stuff that you add to it whereas Mm. if you try and tell because a lot of the early Russell T. Davis single part stories almost felt like old-school four-episode stories condensed into 45 minutes. Mm. And Idiot's Lantern's a brilliant case of that because Idiot's Lantern could have been so much better if they'd just lost one of the subplots and been able to concentrate a bit more on the A-plot. You know what I mean? Mm -mm. Mm. Yeah. Get rid of the story about the kid and his dad because there's so little of it. It feels perfunctory. It feels... It feels like you've added it in because you want to make a statement, not because mm. it comes naturally out of the characters. Yeah. So get rid of that, and it would have been, it would have been a much leaner story, and you'd have been able to concentrate more on some of the good stuff. There's mm. a scene in *The Idiot's Lantern*, and this is the scene. I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but I always point to as the big flaw in Mark Gatus' writing because it comes from the League of Gentlemen background. And it's the scene where the Doctor meets the policeman, right? Yeah. And they sit down, and it's a two-minute scene. And it's not broken up by any cutaways to anything else. So it's just two minutes of two actors facing each other across the desk in a sort of three-camera setup. And it's the bit where the policeman has arrested the Doctor, is suspicious of him, thinks he's guilty of something, and in the course of the two minutes the doctor turns it around until the policeman trusts him and will follow the doctor into battle. Yeah. Mm. Works great as a comedy sketch. Yeah. Works really, really, really badly as a piece of character drama. Mm. And the rest of Idiot's lanterns taking itself so seriously, it's like that scene sticks out like a sore thumb. You don't mm. know what to make of it. <laughs> it could be it could be really funny if the rest of the episode had that lightness of tone but there's no mm. lightness of tone in it so all the fun stuff with the doctor and rose at the start feels smug and then you get to a scene like that and it, it feels like it wants to make you laugh and at the end of it i think you're supposed to be smiling wryly and actually i was strangling the person sitting next to me <laughs> but that's kind yeah. of just a little example of what's wrong with the episode. You know, mm. you take that, you take the story about the father and the boy that kind of feels really pat, and you can't believe in either of the characters. You can't believe in anybody in The Idiot's Lantern. No, no.
1: And yet there's so many nice little things. I mean, certainly on the mm. horror side, once again, Mark Gatiss understands horror and he understands the stuff that frightens people and frightens children. He understands that, but it's just getting those ideas to gel with a story that you care about seems to be the issue.
0: Yeah, um, I
1: don't think... Little things like the grandmother. the fa- uh, Lovely. The 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 fact that they're, they've... <laughs> well, they, haven't they stuck the grandmother in the top room or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, re- Just odd, like League of Gentlemen. You know, in, in real life, if that happened to someone, first thing they do is get the authorities around to work out what the hell's wrong with her.
0: Mm-hmm. My grandmother's yeah. lost her face, but... It, it, it doesn't it's... feel like it could really happen. No. And... In, and obviously this is the 50s anyway, so you know you wouldn't have had social services or whatever or not <laughs> in the way that you do now. But the point is, if it doesn't feel like it could really happen, then you have to create a universe in which it does. Yes. The the thing that the Avengers used to do, and people always describe this as Avengers England, you know, most of the Avengers storylines are pure, ridiculous nonsense. But because they set them in a version of England that feels like pure ridiculous nonsense anyway, you can get away with it because they feel right for the background. You know, each episode feels like a piece, a complete and total piece, where all the elements are all working towards one goal. And then you get something like The Idiot's Lantern and the comedy and the horror are working at angles from each other and the plot and the character are working at angles away from each other. And all instead of all the elements coming together to form a piece, all the elements are detracting from one another, so that when you get to the end of it... And I don't dislike it. I think it's a fine and acceptable episode, but it's not a good episode or a great episode by any stretch of the imagination, because at mm. the end of it, you feel dissatisfaction. Mm. And you might not mm. be able to put your finger on why, Because you might say, well I enjoyed that character Yeah, you may have enjoyed him because of some of the comedy things he did or something you know. But you didn't enjoy him because you could empathise with him as a human being Mm -hmm. So all the different elements at the end have left you feeling dissatisfied in some way Mm -hmm. And like Mm -hmm. I say, if you'd have taken some of the elements out, maybe you could have made a piece that felt more of a piece
1: Mm. Yeah Absolutely yeah, I mean, the whole thing about herding them all and sticking them all in a room, you know, you think, well, yeah. how am...
0: <laughs> That's really co- sort of a Quatermass-ish type idea, isn't it?
1: Yeah, if they'd stuck them on an island somewhere where they were literally, you know, the law were their own law, and that's what they do, and yeah, that's fine, it's understandable, but, you know...
2: This, well, you look at
0: a... um, Miracle Day, Torchwood Miracle Day, which wasn't successful by any stretch of the imagination, but the really successful bit of Torchwood Miracle Day... Is a bit where they herd up all the nearly dead and put them in um, concentration camps. Yes. You know, and that's very similar to what's happening in The Idiot's Lantern.
1: Mm. And
0: yet you've just mm. got that one scene. You know, yeah. if you'd have had some kind of build up to that and some kind of payoff from that, but you don't really. It's just like, it almost feels like he's put that story strand in just so that they can have that one scene. Mm -hmm. I don't know, it just... Idiot's Lantern is one of those stories that just doesn't quite add up. Yeah. Which has been true of all the first three episodes we've just talked about. Yeah. But fortunately, and this Mm -hmm. is why I said it falls into three at the top, four in the middle, and three at the bottom, fortunately, you can't say the same about any of the other stories we're going to talk about. No. Mm -hmm. And I think the next two stories... Well, I know you don't like one of them, but I do... And I think we'll both agree on the other one. But I think they're both a lot more successful than the three we've just talked about. Yeah. So before we get to them, shall we go back and have another email? Go on. Uh, This is also from Ben in Indiana. He says, uh, (laughs) He says, Hello, Blue Boxers and Tom. He's my new favourite cast member. (laughs) Just heard... Yeah. That be if anybody's not sure, that's Mark's little boy. You can often be heard screaming in the background. (laughs) Just heard your Season 14 podcast, and I had to comment on the Hand of Fear discussion, particularly at the end when the Doctor tells Sarah she can't come to Califrey. You guys sounded really puzzled over why the Doctor would make such a big deal about not taking her, and what reason he could have that makes him choose to dump Sarah rather than take her to his home planet. I believe there's two reasons. One... He either didn't think his relationship with Sarah was far enough along for her to meet his parents, or two, he obviously didn't want her memories erased. Think about it, the last time we see the Doctor actually on Gallifrey is at the end of the War Games. Not only was he in trouble with the Time Lords for stealing the TARDIS and meddling in the affairs of other planets, he had also committed the sin of bringing two aliens, Jamie and Zoe, with him to Gallifrey big no-no, and the mm. Time Lords erased his companions' memories and forced them to leave him. Jamie and Zoe were two of the Doctor's best friends ever, and he was visibly saddened that they were forced to forget nearly all the time they'd spent together. If anything, they taught him a lesson about not bringing aliens to Gallifrey. So when the fourth Doctor receives the call to return home in Hand of Fear, just about the first thing he says to himself is, I can't take Sarah to Gallifrey. He remembered what happened to Jamie and Zoe, and I have to think he couldn't stand the thought of Sarah's mind being erased too. It's even sort of highlighted in the episode when Sarah is about to walk out of the door, looks over her shoulder and says, Don't forget me. Of course, when the Doctor finally gets to Gallifrey and the Deadly Assassin, he finds that things have changed a lot since the last time he was there. Back in the old black-and-white days, the Time Lords were gods, but now he finds that they've devolved into bickering and ineffectual bureaucrats. So this time, the lesson he learns is these guys can't do anything right anymore. Which is why the next time we see him on Gallifrey in Invasion of Time, he doesn't think twice about bringing along Leela. He knows the Time Lords are so ineffective by this point they've probably forgotten how to erase minds or even find the button that does it. Love from Indiana, Ben. There you go. Well, obviously he's completely and utterly retconned it in the same kind of way that (laughs) Lee would do. But uh, it works, it works. Yeah, yeah, it does. And that was quite a nice email. Obviously, though, Ben's one of those people who just spends too much time thinking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh! no irony at all intended there. I'm just being sweet. Yeah. Okay, the story that came fourth bottom or uh, seventh from top. This is where it gets blurry. It does. Um, Well, I'll, I'll read out what Sean... And Richard had to say about it. And then uh, we'll see if you can guess which story it might possibly be. Sean M. Vale says, alternate universe and a good old-fashioned moustache-twirling megalomaniac. Whereas Richard Hogarth says, new Cybermen, Roger Lloyd-Pack being evil. I really enjoyed this story, but it's unfortunately let down by the Mickey story and parallel Jackie and Pete story for me. So, obviously, we're talking about The Impossible Planet, right? (laughs) Actually, you know, I picked that one at random, but The Impossible Planet would have been a great alternative title for Rise of the Cybermen taking place on an Earth where there are airships and such like. Yeah, yeah. Yes, of course. We're talking about Rise of the Cybermen.
1: And I'm punching the air in agreement. With? With the choice
0: of... The voters. Oh, not putting it in the top <laughs> half, you mean? Yeah, yeah, I have to say. Because you don't like it, but for anybody who's not heard you ranting and raving about this on any number of podcasts in the past, <laughs> would you like to repeat the reasons why?
1: why do you, I, I still don't understand why the choice was made. And I know you've said this again and again, but it just hasn't stuck with me as to why... Uh, Russell T Davis felt the need to reinvent the cyberman as being as coming from Earth in an alternate universe rather than
0: an alternate back. universe an alternate uh, earth in our universe sorry but also the
1: fact that that why would an alien race that the doctor knows about um, just happen to be appearing and being created in a parallel earth I don't, st- I, don't I can't get my head I am oh. well I understand that the law of averages you know infinite earths it's possible somewhere but I don't understand why that leap of logic was made in his head to bring the Cybermen back to earth was it purely to do some almost like an origin episode is that the idea I don't know well I think it's that's focusing
0: why... far too much on the Cybermen there Simon ok because Russell T. Davis' idea was that the only reason why Rose would leave the Doctor would be if she couldn't be with him. You know, physically impossible. And so, yeah. his means to get rid of Rose was by having her in an alternate universe.
1: Fantastic. Yeah, I like are... that.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, this happened to happen in the last episode, right? Yep. Yeah and Russell T. Davis also wanted to do, in that last episode, as the backdrop to Rose being forced to leave the Doctor, he also wanted to do Daleks versus Cybermen. Okay. Right, given that he wanted to do Daleks versus Cybermen in the very last story, which was going to be set on a parallel Earth, mm. he made the decision that he was going to, of the two monsters, save the Daleks to be the surprise reveal. Knowing that if you had one of those monsters already in the story, nobody would expect the other one to turn up. And Mm. given that he'd already used the Daleks, and given that the Daleks are the Daleks, he saves those for the cliffhanger at the end of episode 12. So the Cybermen have to already be in the story. So the Cybermen are on a parallel Earth. Right. So now you've got three strands in your final story. You've okay. got, this is the one where Rose is forced to leave the Doctor. This is the one where you've already got the Cybermen and then the Daleks turned up. And this is the one on a parallel Earth. So mm. that's quite a lot to tell in two episodes. So T. Davis says, okay. Better than to tell it in two episodes. Let's tell the parallel Earth story in a separate story of its own so that we can use that backdrop in the final two-parter as an already established part of the Doctor Who universe. And because mm. the Cybermen are going to be in that story, and because the Cybermen are going to therefore be in ext- um, in... oh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're going to be linked. <laughs> yeah, They're going to be linked with the parallel Earth in such a way that once you see the Cybermen in the final two-parter, then you know the parallel universe is going to come into play, and, you know, it ticks off all the boxes in your mind so that you can... so that the watching audience at home, particularly the non-Doctor Who fans, who don't necessarily keep up with these things, as soon as they see the Cybermen, they're able to then accept that we travel between our universe and the parallel universe without having to think about it too hard. Mm. So you need, therefore, for the Cybermen to be on a parallel universe in the first place when they first turn up in their own story earlier in the series, mm. where all the backstory okay. gets developed. Now, like I said a minute ago, you know, in the original series, the Cybermen are created on a parallel Earth in our universe. Well, here, they're created on an Earth in a parallel universe. It's not that far removed. If you look at Inferno, everything that's in our universe in Inferno is also in the parallel universe in Inferno. Mm. So, it follows... There's a certain logic that's established by the parallel universe story in the classic series that everything that's on our Earth... In the modern series, will also be on a parallel Earth.
2: Mm.
0: Now, we've seen, we know that there are Cybermen in our universe, and we know that they came from a parallel version of the Earth. This was established in the 10th planet. So, there's not that much of a stretch to have the Cybermen being developed on a parallel Earth in the modern Doctor Who as well, particularly okay. as it takes place in a parallel universe where we know the Cybermen must have been developed somewhere and somehow mm. there's therefore no reason not to actually see it okay does all that make sense?
1: it makes sense but
0: you still don't agree
1: Um. well I'm going to do this fan thing of saying well if I was writing it I'm not going to do that but if I was writing it <laughs> I don't think I think you could have done that but there's other ways of bringing in the what I would call the proper Cybermen but I'm talking like a fan here Yeah, well, you're concentrating on the
0: Cybermen. Yeah, yeah, okay. Rather than the story. You know, with Russell T. Davis, it's story first, and, you know, whatever the monster is second. Mm. But you're concentrating on monster first and story second. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah, but you are, aren't you? You're saying, oh, I wish the Cybermen had been done properly. But you're not talking about whether the story was done properly and the Cybermen suited it. Yeah, yeah. Because I think the Cybermen really suit that story. I think the way the Cybermen were redone, with them being a sort of analogy for modern technology as opposed to spare parts technology, Mm. because spare parts technology is passé these days. You know? Yeah, yeah. Heart transplants Mm. are not to a penny, but you know what I mean?
2: Mm.
0: Back in the late 60s, mid to late 60s, heart transplants were new and scary. These days, they're commonplace and helpful. Yeah, you can't yeah. really write a horror story about something that's commonplace and as a, of benefit to society. Mm, so mm. you have to find something else. And, you know, in the years since Rise of the Cybermen, we've seen what's been happening with modern technology. Yeah, You know, all this thing about the sonic screwdriver, you know, it is for Matt Smith's doctor. It is just like having a iPhone or a tablet or something, it yeah. does just about everything and it fits in your pocket. You know that's the world we're living in now. Mm. And Rise of the Cybermen, that scene where they stop in the middle of the street and they get the news and a joke and the weather downloaded into their heads through the earpieces.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, it's quite a prescient. It's in some ways just as prescient as you know, the original Cyberman story was way back in
1: 1966. Mm, mm. So actually... No, no, fair, fair dues, yeah.
0: And also, apart from that, it's bloody silly, filled with lots of overacting, some very arch performances and some very yeah. arch direction, and a script that doesn't take itself too seriously. It's barrels of fun. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, I must rewatch it. I've not watched it recently, if I'm honest. Some of it's um,
0: dreadful. I'm not going to argue with that. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of it is just... It's one of those stories... Sit down. Put it on. I wouldn't say disengage your brain, but relax. If you relax and just watch it, hoping to be entertained, I do not think it'll let you down.
1: I think you maybe should downgrade your brain slightly. Yeah. Or yeah. well, downgrade your
0: expectations. We're yeah, always talking I... on this podcast about expectations not being realised. That's what's happened with you in this story isn't
1: it? It is really yeah yeah I am guilty.
0: Hmm. <laughs> and, and you know I I I don't think that's necessarily a wrong thing. Mm. But having said that, I I will always say and I always am saying well because the story didn't meet your expectations doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily a fault that you can lay at the story's door.
1: No no. So Sort of things. So if you can't get it in your head, though, it's, it's very tricky.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, obviously. And I do try
1: it. to, I do try to, and it didn't stop me enjoying it. And, um, I mean, thumpy cyber, cybermen, you know, they'd never sneak up on you. They still manage to sneak up on people, though, even though they seem to have the legs like
0: pneumatic drills. But Well, he retcons that away in The Next Doctor, doesn't he? He does, yeah. You know what, though, um, that was something that was in the script. The Cyberman creeps up on somebody, right? Mm. I don't suppose in the script... It uh, it said that the Cybermen were going to be quite as stompy as they were, right? Mm. It mm. probably had in the script in one scene... Oh, the Cybermen are stomping around. The mm. sort of stuff at the start <laughs> of the second episode. And then later on it says the Cyberman creeps up on somebody. And then mm. once the script is written... Somebody goes off and designs the Cybermen... And then once the Cybermen are designed, somebody goes off and makes the costume. And then once the costumes are made, they go out onto location and a director films it. And Russell T. Davis might sign off on all of those things, but he's not there for all of those things. And I suppose by the time you get to actually putting it on screen, it's probably a bit too late. Oh, yeah. We've got, like, the
1: choreographer. The first thing
0: choreographers yeah. going to do is get them stomping around, and then the sound guy comes in and looks at the footage and says, right, what sound can we put to that? Oh, I know. Yeah, and if it, yeah. and if it hadn't been that sound, yeah, you could probably have gotten away with the silent Cyberman later if the sound of the Cybermen stomping had been significantly different. Mm. Just as effective, maybe, but a different kind of a sound. Mm. You could have imagined that you only get that sound when they're deliberately stomping in unison, quite a few of them. But because of the particular sound they chose, you can't therefore suspend your disbelief for one creeping around afterwards, can you? No. Yeah,
1: so it's not this... they need these little, little wheels in the bottom of their shoes, and just like a little sound, and you see a Cyberman slide up behind them sideways.
0: Or three years later, a line in a script that says, "Ah, you've put you've you put your legs in stealth mode." Yes. Very silly. Yeah. But I don't mind that because. Sometimes you get things in the finished production that weren't that way in the script. And, you know, those scenes of the Cybermen stomping around were really effective. And actually, yeah. divorced from that, the scene of the Cyberman creeping up was really effective. It's just that the two don't fit together. But I don't think that the, you could have really helped that. So I'm prepared to give those things a pass. Because they weren't meant to be that way in the script. It wasn't a fault of the story. It was ultimately a fault of the production. And although they should have stayed on top of that and made sure it didn't happen, it did. You either you either forgive it, or else that's a big problem in your enjoyment. And I'd rather enjoy it.
1: Yeah, and at the end of the day, you want proof of how fickle we are as fans, and certainly I am, is that by the time of Army of Ghosts, I'd forgotten all of that anyway, all of my problems, because, mm. well, we'll come to that, but yeah.
0: But not tonight. Not tonight. Oh, good. Mm. So, do you want to guess which story came sixth, then, if it's not Army of Ghosts?
1: Oh God! Um...
0: Because this is one point. These two stories are one point away from each other and switched with another story as well, any number of times.
1: Oh God! Tooth and Claw.
0: It is. That will be the last story we talk about tonight. Tooth and Claw. Oh really? I really drawn the short straw with this one, haven't I? Well, you'll still
1: be here next week. I think that Lee and Mark have made excuses.
0: (laughs) Because they didn't want to talk about these stories. (laughs) But you know what? I think in spite of the fact that there's problems all over the place, and when Mm. I say all over the place, I don't mean in every story, but I mean throughout the whole sort of timeline of the series, I think there are problems here because they are finding their feet. I think the problems, a lot of them are by and large because they're finding their feet. And trying new things out, and trying mm. to understand what the programme is they're making. But in spite of the fact that these problems, I don't think there's a single episode in this series that I couldn't watch for fun, including Fear Her. No. no. And I think it's the most important thing is, you know, like I said at the start of the episode, the most important thing when you put an episode on is that you enjoy it. So yes. if you can watch it for fun, yeah, you know, even if you have to relax your brain a little bit or whatever if you can mm. still enjoy it on that level then it was still worth making absolutely
1: yeah and no, i don't come across overly harsh on these i mean at the time i just thought it was great really did think it was great and
0: um how oh, are we talking about tooth yeah. and claw now
1: oh well no 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 i mean series two Oh, series general. two
0: sorry yeah go on yeah go on yeah
1: no, in, in, yes. as much as, you know, when it came on, it was just like, yes, this is, you know, and David Tennant was flying. It was like, I couldn't believe what a great actor we'd got, you know, um,
0: to, I have to, to, say, to, to
1: play the role, you know, uh, uh, an absolute, you know, somebody who lived and breathed the role.
0: And I have to say, I think overall, I think this is my, I think this is a series out of all the Russell T. Davis ones that I find the most entertaining. Yeah. Mm. I think the first one is the most consistent. Mm. Uh but I think this one is the one I get the most entertainment out of. Yeah, yeah. I'm not so keen on three and four in spite of uh in spite of Catherine Tate. Because yes. I think the stories in series four let it down rather.
2: Mm.
0: I don't mm. mean that they're bad stories, I just mean that they're rather predictable by that point. Yeah. And that's one thing about You know, that's one thing about this series is it's not predictable.
1: No. It's firing on all cylinders, isn't it? It's, Mm. it's,
0: yeah. I think Russell T. Davis, the first series, I found very unpredictable. In spite of the consistency, you know, from one week to the next, you didn't know quite what you were going to get. And you Mm. still get that in this series. But as of series three, it's like the whole, Contemporary history future Contemporary History Future thing mm. that Russell T. Davis has got it going on. He does that in the first series and you think, okay, you know, that's what we're gonna have. You know, we're gonna alternate between these three kinds of stories. But then when he does it exactly the same in series two, you're thinking, okay, well they're trying out other things. You actually get to see the countryside in series two, for example, something mm. you don't get in series one you get to see the surface of an alien planet a couple of times. Something that you don't get to see in series one. So series two gets a pass on that Mm. Mm. because it's it's still managing, just about, to get away with being unpredictable. But then by the time you get to series three it's like, okay, contemporary past future. Contemporary past future. And it doesn't throw you, apart from the human doctor in human nature, there's no curveballs left in series three.
1: No. Mm.
0: Anyway, Tooth and Claw. Yes. I think of the five episodes we've talked today, talked about today, for me that's the one that is almost I wouldn't say almost flawless because <laughs> that'd be a ridiculous thing to say. But you know what I mean? That's the yeah. first one of the five we talked about today that doesn't have any major flaws.
1: No, it's classy. It is classy and from the off it feels Ooh, I'm just trying to remember the, some of the clips from when I first was aware of it. All the stuff with the guys doing the martial arts and things like that. You thought, wow, this is something really different going on here. There's some real creative filmmaking going on. There's an effort to do really up the ante on on the show. Um, great casting. Great effect. Um, you know, I, I voted it fairly low because there uh, are other don't... better stories yeah yeah and there isn't a huge amount to the story you know it's a werewolf story it's better than the vampire story from the from the latest series so yeah. going for a classic monster it, it achieves it far better um, but yeah, yeah I, some I, really
0: I, creepy stuff as well in this story yeah. in fact yeah, before and... he turns into the werewolf mm. <laughs> the, yeah, the guy I mean... who they get to play it is a really freaky looking bloke or is I mean, made par- up to be. Apart from
1: the empty child, I think it was probably the up to that point. It, it was the the next one along that sort of where you thought, "Oh, is this too much for the kids?" You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it was it was good, and it was it had suspense and um, it had integrity, and as I say, it, it was classy. I, I don't, as you say, there aren't any real holes to plug
0: with it. It does just work. It does exactly what it should do. I think. <clears throat> the one thing i might have asked for is that after that pre-title sequence where you see the kung fu monks doing their kung fu monk stuff <laughs> it's a shame there's no more kung fu from the monks yes yeah it does because feel like that kind of it, it does feel on. like yeah it does feel exactly tagged on for the pre-titles <laughs> but but you know whatever yeah but it's a nice story and it's got some nice ideas and some nice touches like the room that has been um, sort of painted in mistletoe. So that the mm. because the guy who owned the house before, the guy who built the house, whatever it was, you know, knew that this werewolf would be coming along one day, and he wanted there to be a safe room in the house. Mm. That's a really nice touch. That's kind of uh, slightly subtle, and but also <clears throat> if you're gonna put a little idea like that in your story it kind of makes the fear factor the scare factor it kind of takes that up a notch because it gives you a sort of subconscious level of feeling that there have been generations of fear Yeah, you know yeah. there's an inbuilt deep rooted level of fear here and it turns the monster into something that's even scarier I more think. tangible yeah yeah mm. absolutely
1: um into the realms of league of extraordinary gentlemen uh, that kind of mm. the idea of these things passing through generations yeah it it also adds to the depth of the series it, it was almost uh, oh it's almost like Russell T Davis had got these foundations that he'd done in the series one series one was the demo to prove they could do it and now he knew he'd got a second series and obviously they put the roots of torchwood in this story as well, didn't they? So, this depth, this hidden depth was... um...
0: It was a shame that we'd already seen Torchwood in the Christmas special, though. I don't know what that was all about. Yeah. Well, we didn't see Torchwood, but we saw... but they were talked about, and we saw what they did, destroying the Sycorax ship. It's like... uh, If we hadn't done that, he could have seeded Torchwood throughout this series. Nobody would have been quite sure what it was. But... When you get to the end of Tooth and Claw and it's a and you find out it's Torchwood House Mm. and the Queen says, Right, we will found this organisation called Torchwood to protect us from people like the Doctor and you think and you're supposed to be thinking, Oh, that's a bit weird, what's that all about? (laughs) But actually you're thinking, Oh, that's right, they're the people who blow spaceships up
1: Yeah. Mm. But
0: so but that's not a fault with this story, that's a fault with using Torchwood in the Christmas invasion.
1: I don't know if that's a fault. I quite. That made sense to me in some respects.
0: Yeah, maybe, but what. Uh, I think the problem with it is that you get to see the foundation of Torchwood after you've seen the effects of Torchwood, and then further on down the line, you get to find out what Torchwood are. Mm. I think it should have been the other way around. Or I think the two things cancel each other out. I think I one know. thing or the other. I think if you'd seen what Torchwood do but not where they came from then you want to know what Torchwood are. Or if you see where Torchwood came from but not what they do, you want to find out what they are. But because you see where Torchwood came from and what they do you don't need mm. to find out what they are. Do no. you know what I'm saying? Yeah, It's like, a, yeah. <laughs>
1: it's
0: like but, you've drawn a straight line instead of Giving you clues to a mystery. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I'm just trying to think with with Tooth and Claw. Does Does uh, Queen Victoria decide to create Torchwood because of the Doctor?
0: Yeah,
1: I think. So I'm pretty it, sure. Maybe it's that been irony. A while since I it, yeah. Maybe that iron, irony wouldn't work so well if they hadn't already seeded the thing of Torchwood. So you've got that irony that oh, hang on, the Doctor's created it himself. So. Hmm. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. But then, but then, if that was the case, then you'd stick a load more stories in front where Torchwood started interfering, and then you find out
0: that the Doctor created it,
1: and then yeah, yeah.
0: this should mm-hmm. be this should I yeah, this could be a payoff to a this could be if this episode had been broadcast in the Fear Her slot, for example, it yeah. would, it would be a real sort of twist. Oh my God, this is where Torchwood came from, Mm. after you've been hearing about them all series. But it's just, here's what they do, here's where they came from, and now we're going to spend the next eight weeks mentioning them every week, Mm. as if it's some kind of deep mystery. But you've seen what they do, and you've seen where they came from.
1: Where's the mystery? What stage did they announce the Torchwood series? Had they already announced that they were going to do it by this point?
0: No, the Torchwood series didn't get announced until after... um... Doomsday. Yeah, I don't think so. No, no. I'm pretty sure it didn't. It couldn't have, could it?
1: No, no, it's true. Yeah, it would have been fairly presumptuous for the BBC to do that, wouldn't it?
0: Yeah, I think, yeah. I wouldn't swear to that, but I'm fairly sure. Yeah. Um, I was, uh, Something else I was going to say about Tooth and Claw then, but it's completely escaped my mind. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Acting-wise, actors were great, When not It was a great cast. Oh, Derek
0: Riddell is... And Pauline Collins, of course, who was yeah. almost a companion back in the sixties. Yeah, yeah. Derek Redell had been in um, No Angels, the Toby Whithouse series about the nurses. That's right. With uh, Linda w- with a Y from um, Bad Wolf. Yes, yeah. That was a great series. Was it? Yeah, yeah, it was. Excellent. I also, this is a really nice story again, like New Earth. I said earlier where you get to see all the elements that are going to pay off at the end. And although he doesn't disguise it as well in this one, it was still nice to see, you know, the crystal and the um, telescope and be able to work it out as it was coming.
2: Mm, mm.
0: It's a really... it's just a good... uh, good old-fashioned Doctor Who story, really.
1: Mm, Yeah. Am I right in thinking that... um... Oh god! Now I've forgotten what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've been talking oh, for too long. Yeah. Oh um. Oh god! What was I going to say? I was going to say about Queen Victoria. That's right. Queen Victoria. Is this the first instance in the new series of using historic figures? Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens, of course. So, and is there one in the third series? I'm trying to think. Shakespeare. It, um, Shakespeare. Yeah. So he's won a series, isn't there? And even yeah, and then Agatha Christie.
0: Agatha Christie in the 4th series. Yes. Stephen Moffat does something different with it, though, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. It's like... (coughs) Excuse me. In the Russell T. Davis ones, the celebrity in the celebrity historical is kind of the reason why the story's there. And the Mm. story's built around the celebrity. But in the Stephen Moffat ones, it's almost like he throws them in uh, As <laughs> a kind of, it's like supporting a, cast. Yeah, absolutely. And I like that. I like the way he's mixed it up. Mm, mm.
1: You know, sure predi- I like the um, the phone lines. You know, the direct phone line to Winston Churchill. I'm not sure about that, but uh, that's something different.
0: Yeah, no, I didn't mind that. It was a bit of a leap. Mm. But by the same token, you know, everything I said about how predictable Russell T Davies's Doctor Who was by series four. Mm all of that predictability was starting to be thrown out the window by Stephen Moffat in Series 5. And I think it's very unpredictable now. Mm -hmm. I think Series 7B was perhaps the most predictable Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who has been, purely because that was the sort of anniversary miniseries and he wanted to make it that way. Mm -hmm. But that was what I loved about Series 6, the unpredictability of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's great. It's interesting that by the time of the Moffat era, um, Torchwood had kind of <laughs> literally been burnt, had not it?
0: Yeah, been um, and gone, cause that,
1: pretty much. Because that would have changed the, might have changed the thing with Winston. It might have changed the dynamic in some respects, because he would have had a, all this greater thing behind
0: him, but, um. Oh, if you'd have had Torchwood in Victory of the Daleks, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Actually, Torchwood would have made a kind of a sense in Victory of the Daleks, because of the, Spitfires and such, you you would have needed some kind of an organisation to make that stuff work. Because people's biggest, one of people's biggest criticisms with that story was okay, Spitfires in space, ready in two minutes. (laughs) It was, it was. Absolutely. Right, I suppose that's teeth and claw. Because I can't, I, I can't remember the other thing I was going to say. I'm sure it was a really insightful insight as well.
1: Mm, mm. It was
0: uh, the werewolf
1: was great, wasn't he? It, it, that, that was a real new standard for the effects, if I remember rightly. It's
0: oh yes, biggest. yes.
1: Mm. And the biggest figure to buy from the shop.
0: Yeah. Yes, it was. I suppose looking back at it now, it probably doesn't look quite as effective as it did then. But it was pretty damn good for the time.
1: That was the only figure from that story, though, wasn't it? Was the werewolf that you didn't? We didn't get any kung fu priests or anything.
0: No, most most stories only really had one figure, though. I think.
1: Yeah, could have done with the Queen Victoria.
0: You know, apart from Winston Churchill, they've not done any of the historical figures, which is a real shame. Yeah, absolutely. I'd have liked a little Shakespeare as well to go with it, and a little Dickens. <laughs>
1: yeah. A little I'd Dickens would have been brilliant. Oh yeah, my have god! I loved
0: all those things. Yeah, but, just sat on, on,
1: on, on the, at the end of my bookshelf.
0: Mm-hmm. Little,
1: little Charles Dickens. <laughs> Never mind.
0: Well, that's the five stories for this week. Anyway, mm. um, we got one more email from Adam Mojo Liberowitz. Uh, which is quite a long email, and it gets very specific, so I'll stick to the gist of it. Um, He says uh, he really likes the unique in-depth topics we've been choosing, especially ones about writers' perspectives. Um, Most podcasts cover the same topics over and over, so it's quite refreshing to not only hear something new, but hear it covered intelligently and in-depth. Pleasantly surprised to see the hour plus running times, as opposed to... Us feeling the need to cram everything into an hour. And kudos for bringing in other guests. Hmm, uh, it does. It yeah, really which kind of keeps things shaking up. Freshens it up, yeah. Anyway, <clears throat> here's an idea for a topic that for 50 years has been intrinsic to the fabric of Doctor Who, yet he doesn't think any podcast has covered it. Visual effects. Excellent. Oh, I'd love to do that. He says special effects has always been an important part of the series and one of the most talked about. In the early days, making fun of the effects was a rite of passage for anyone discovering the series, but the new series has fairly impressive work that allows them to tell stories that might not be possible without CGI and green screens. But of course, that's part of the discussion. How important are the visual effects? Are they simply window dressing and eye candy? Or are they an important part of the storytelling process? Mm. So, well, to cut the rest of him short, he thinks we should do a podcast about... The visual effects and, you know, how much a part of the storytelling process they are as opposed to just being, you know, just another part of the series, I guess.
1: My brain's ticking over already. I've already thought of one which is integral.
0: Well, we've got quite a few things to get through across the next few weeks or so. Yeah. And, you know, visual effects is not really my kind of bag. But (laughs) I think that's one we should definitely put on the list and come back to... You know, well, we'll get around to it, I guess. Mm, mm. But definitely on the list. Yeah, brilliant. Okay. Right, well, that's it then, Simon. That's... Oh, my God, we did it. An hour and a half. Bloody yeah, hell. Yeah, considering some of the two of us, we've talked for quite a long time. <laughs> <coughs> my throat's dry. I need to go and put the kettle on.
1: Yeah, yeah. So much, well, yeah.
0: Well, next week, um... hopefully there'll be a fuller compliment of us. Hmm even if it isn't the fullest compliment of us. But for now, and so next week we'll cover the five stories that came top in Series 2. Excellent. But for now, I was JR. I was Simon. And we will speak again soon.